because the vision for IoT is tens of billions of devices, a multivariate system, analytics, pattern matching, rules, and then later on ML and things like that where it's appropriate, and then making decisions on its own. You're listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey, brought to you by Very. In each episode, we have sharp, unfiltered conversations with executives about their IoT journeys, the mistakes they made, the lessons they learned, and what they wish they'd known when they started. Welcome back to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. My name is Ryan Prosser, CEO of Very, and today we're joined by Rob Tiffany, Vice President and Head of Strategy at Ericsson and Executive Director at Moab Foundation. So those are official designations, but unofficially, for those who know, Rob is sort of the OG of the IoT space, and today we are going to get into it. Rob, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Ryan. It's good to be here, man. So, Rob, you've got this huge presence in the IoT space. You've been around, you know, you sort of like the Forrest Gump of IoT at all the pivotal moments and all the pivotal places. For those that aren't as familiar, can you give us a little bit of background on, you know, your career arc? And then let's get into Moab and Ericsson a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I've totally been hanging out with Forrest and Lieutenant Dan this whole time, dude. So yes, going back to the dawn of time in the 90s is when I kind of got started doing this IoT stuff. It was after I got out of the military. I joined a startup called Real-Time Data. What a unique name that is. And um, the whole idea was monitoring vending machines wirelessly. And so this was back in the mid 90s. Like I remember Windows 95 coming out at that time frame. So that's kind of my frame of reference there, right? So earliest days of the internet being open to the rest of the world and not just uh, ARPANET and stuff like that. And um, it was like, how are we going to have machines talk to us? You know, the original idea was let's, uh, we have route drivers who deliver products to fill up vending machines and they have routes and they drive around the city. So they mindlessly get in trucks and with candy and drinks to go fill the machines. And we're like, you know, I bet you if the machines told us their inventory wirelessly or over the internet, that could we could optimize things. And so it was kind of a simple thing there. And so I'm just a kid there working with a bunch of really rocket science guys, like literally the guys who created the black box for aircraft, all these RF engineers. You can imagine when you're starting and you're having to invent everything yourself, like every aspect, when we think of all the stack, the things that go into doing an IoT solution, can you imagine if you had to invent every bit of it from scratch because it hadn't been done before? And so literally we're inventing wireless modems to send packets over like these community business radio towers, like 450 megahertz towers by hook or by crook. It wasn't like you had some big cellular data networks back then, right? We had people who were doing firmware, you know, black boxes inside a vending machine connected to cables, finding out how the inventory is going, how much money it's making, and then stuff running on a PC, a graphical interface that looked just like you're looking at a vending machine and seeing the current inventory. And so uh, I learned so much from that experience, just being the stupid kid on the team and learning from all these gray beards who basically taught me everything I know about being a software engineer, about large scale architecture. And so it, it also gives you perspective as you move forward. When you do something, you know, we didn't know what we were doing then. We just had a use case, right? We're just solving a problem and we're using a series of technologies to solve it, right? One of the things you learned was, oh, you know, having efficient packets turns out to be a thing because we had to pay by the byte by back then. 
And so you're bit encoding your packets, you know, doing the XOR and all that fun stuff to make everything efficient because it really cost a lot of money back then. It's not like things are today. And so as you progress forward and you have that, we raised a bunch of money and, you know, that company that lived on inside another bigger vending company actually these days. But that's where you got my start. And you learned the importance of wireless connectivity. One of our founders, I don't know if a lot of people know this, one of the people who backed us financially was Macaw Cellular. And so for those who don't know what that, Craig Macaw is like one of the pioneers in the wireless industry. A lot of this stuff happened in the Pacific Northwest. So Macaw Cellular was the first nationwide cellular network in the United States. You know it as AT&T Wireless today, though. And so that's what all that became. And they backed us because we were pushing the envelope on what could be done and so, you know how you hear lots of people talk about IoT or the first utterances of that or when we got together didn't happen until sometime after 2000. That's just total crap. We were doing that stuff early, early days and it was bleeding edge and we were definitely bleeding a lot, but it was, it was a lot of fun and it sets yourself on a trajectory as things get more sophisticated, as tool sets and stacks and things that you might use to build solutions get more sophisticated over time. It seems new to other people, but to, you had to invent the whole thing. And so like when I think about, when I relate it to my experiences today, IoT just seems mindlessly easy because it, it's effortless. We didn't have clouds. We didn't have sophisticated development tools. We didn't have all that stuff. We didn't have great data networks everywhere. So did that, you know, rode the wireless wave, you know, did a mobile device management startup in the early 2000s. You know, like if you think of AirWatch or Mobile Iron or things like that, BlackBerry Enterprise Server. So had that, had a good exit there. And then went to work for Microsoft. And if anybody remembers Windows Mobile or Windows Phone, if you ever had a phone with the tiles on it, that was me. And so that was great being on that team and building an operating system and technology for smartphones. I think we did better when it was just us and BlackBerry. Obviously, we got our ass kicked later on by the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, I wasn't right? going to say it, but yeah, yeah. yeah. no, it happens. It, it, that's life, right? You know, and so you, you had good times and then you had to get really thick skin as people are shooting arrows at you. I used to do the majority of all our executive briefings for mobility and I ended up doing the same thing for IoT at Microsoft. So we have this big executive briefing center and executives from all over the planet are flying into Seattle every week. And so I would do the, the talk about mobile and it went from early days of being, yeah, this is amazing. We're going to change our business with this to, I can't believe I'm going to use this thing in my enterprise. You, you know, as soon as the iPhone came along, it was no bueno for us. Was there a, a moment that if you could go back mentally into your Windows mobile journey, you were like, okay, that was the point at which we sealed our fate as, you know, able to be overtaken by iOS you know, was there like a fundamental decision you made early on and you said, okay, later looking back, you said, wow, that was not the correct decision based on the way technology evolved. Or... Yeah. You know, a lot of people said, oh, Microsoft's late because they think of Windows Phone that came out in 2010 with the tiles, but we were actually really early. You know, we had created something called an embedded operating system back in 96 called Windows CE and that you used to build industrial stuff. But we built the Pocket PC on top of that, which was a competitor to the Palm Pilot in the 90s. And then BlackBerry, before they were phones, they were two-way pagers with text and stuff like that. And so we were competing in that space and that evolved into a phone. And so early days, that first phone grew out of the Pocket PC and we were kind of using some of the Windows 95 metaphors for the user interface on the phone because we didn't know what we didn't know. And so we evolved, you know, when the iPhone came out, 
early on, and you know, Steve Ballmer said some ridiculous stuff about how it was so expensive, it didn't even have a keyboard. A lot of our devices had keyboards, just like the Blackberries. People, you know, we had great success. We sold lots of phones in those days. It, it took about, I don't know, three years before iPhone's shipping volume finally matched where we were. We were super focused on the enterprise, because and that's where everybody was between us and BlackBerry. We were focused on email, exchange server, push email used to be a big thing for some reason, encryption, device management, all that stuff. And iPhone could care less about the enterprise. And they went directly after the consumer. You know, Apple's like, who cares about the enterprise? Consumer's way bigger. And so uh, we we tried multiple times to launch something called Windows Mobile 7. I got prototypes showing user interfaces you can't believe that we never saw the light of day, though. And then we kept blowing up teams. New executives would come in. We'd try something. They'd get their heads chopped off. A new team would come in. We'd shoot them in the head. Finally had a group, and we launched the thing with the tiles, the live tiles, which ultimately inspired Windows 8. And then the tiles you see on the start menu in Windows 10, all that came from all our design work for Windows Phone 7, as we called it. And so we were late to the party in those terms as far as a consumer device and trying to pivot from enterprise to consumer. And so when we launched that consumer device with tiles, yeah, it was beautiful. We got like great reviews. We didn't have a lot of time to move over all the enterprise features into it. I don't know if it would have mattered or not, and so it was like an empty shell of a device. It was pretty. It had a browser. It could do email and some apps. Not a lot. And so all of a sudden, the enterprises said, this phone's crap. You lost all your enterprise tech, your security, your manageability, that kind of stuff. In the meantime, you know, obviously, Apple wasn't sitting still. Then Android was launched, you know, with the first HTC devices. HTC was our primary partner through that whole time. They were an ODM that kind of white-labeled devices for us and a lot of mobile operators. And then uh, I think they saw the light with Android. And so they created like the earliest Android devices. In fact, a lot of people don't remember, HTC was actually the leader in the Android space for quite a while before Samsung finally surpassed them with the Galaxy devices. I think we just didn't get consumer quick enough. We had some people that got it. And we were just such an enterprise-focused business. And I think that's... And so we dragged our feet. We tried to come back. We acquired Nokia's handset business. One of our guys, Stephen Elop, he was leading office. He left Microsoft and ended up becoming the CEO of Nokia. And, you know, a lot of people don't remember, you know, the same question you're asking me is, you know, when did Windows Phone or Windows Mobile start to die and realize there was a turning point? Nokia had an even bigger reckoning than we did. Nokia used to own the entire phone market completely. No one was even close. And I remember Stephen Elop, when he takes over at CEO, and he's standing on stage doing his first presentation, and he shows a picture of an oil drilling platform in the Gulf of Mexico on fire. And he's like, Nokia is a burning platform. <laughs> We're dying, and we got to start over fast. And so however you want to couch it, we made a deal with them. Actually, we made a deal before we bought them where they would adopt Windows Phone as their primary operating system. They were using something called Symbian that both Nokia and Ericsson were using back then. And so they went all in with our stuff. Nokia made beautiful devices. We got some market share, but, you know, it just was never enough. And then, you know, by the time, you know, Balmer left and Satya Nadella took over, Satya just he he was not into the phone space at all. He thought we were just probably throwing good money after bad down a hole. And so he was the one who pulled the plug on the whole phone deal completely and shut down the business. Kind of around the same time as the Surface line for Windows 
was starting to come up and start having success. And so, uh, so there you have it. Of course, now the Surface Duo is uh, this hinge device out there that, of course, it's based on Android. So yeah, maybe Microsoft will be back in that space just a little bit, but not much. You know, enterprise focus, actually. You, you've got an entire chapter, you know, coming up in this narrative about Ericsson, but I want to pause and jump in. You know, when you got Rob on the show, there really is no script. We just go in different directions and see where the wind blows us. Talk to me about consumer IOT. So, you know, Microsoft, you're talking about Microsoft struggling to like really get it right. Microsoft, of course, massive company, unlimited resources, you know, they're struggling to get it right. I guess I'm talking mostly about mobile. This is going to be a con- broadly consumer IoT question, but yeah. HTC, you know, had a they ran like hell for a minute. BlackBerry was a giant player until they fizzled out, you know, colossally. Now they're a business case uh, on its, <laughs> you know, of like what happens when um, you talk about Nokia. You know, you have to be a certain age, but if you are over forty, you owned a Nokia phone, and so did every one of your friends. And yep. like Snake was Snake. the hottest mobile game yes. possible. Um, and so talk to me about consumer IOT, you know, at very, we don't do a lot of consumer. Our view generally is the consumer space is dominated by small number of people that have really deep pockets. They're very likely to do, you know, a lot of this work themselves. And then you got a long tail of entrepreneurs and innovators trying to scrap their way through it and figure it out. But hard, hardware is hard. They're yeah. often underfunded. What's your view on consumer IoT? How, like, yeah. I'll pepper a few follow-up yeah. questions. Like, how if someone's out there, they're working at a small consumer IoT company right now. They're shouting at the radio, "We're here, we're, we're doing here. it." You know, yeah. it's yeah. Like, what do you think these folks coming from this time at Microsoft, having taken some lumps here? Yeah, what's the future of the SMB IO? You know, consumer IoT space. Is there glimmers of hope? Are there pockets? Are there things you would avoid at all costs? Yeah, no, that's interesting. And also, I don't want people to think that when we're talking about mobile, it's unrelated to IoT, because we wouldn't have the sensor technology and low-powered you know, microcontrollers today if it wasn't for the driving force of smartphone revolution that made all that stuff not only possible, but pushed the prices down. Because you know, IoT came to life. Obviously, we've been doing telemetry and sending commands to machines for decades, but through proprietary methods, you know, what got IoT off the ground was certainly a perfect storm. And maybe it was happening, some people didn't even realize it was happening, maybe the 2010 timeframe, where battery power was long enough, microcontrollers, these small ARM devices were powerful enough, sensors were cheap enough, and wireless, which also goes with mobile, but it, we carried it over to, to IoT. It became ubiquitous enough and cost-effective enough where regular folks could get involved in this. And so when you had that perfect storm to come together back then, you had a lot of people say, oh my God, I'm going to jump into this. Obviously, it was helped by McKinsey with their big report telling everyone that IoT was going to be an $11 trillion market. And so everybody's like, oh, I'm going to go after that big bag of cash. And so people dove in. And you know what? To your point, they dove into consumer IoT first. And so anybody who was going to CES every year back in those days, all the way through you know the mid part of the last decade, most of the IoT startups that you would see at CES were all consumer IoT. And people were launching, they probably thought it was cool at the time, but they were just stupid stuff. 
you know, your IoT coffee pot, your IoT toaster, your IoT. Basically, people took any consumer product that was out there and plugged it in. <laughs> and so you had all these IoT devices that were doing stuff like that, thousands of them. And there's no money in that space to begin with. Also, a lot of people didn't realize, and, and you still see this today, you know, there's the notion of there's the current version of the product, we'll say it like a doorbell. And then there's the, the IoT, the ring or the other, you know, there's a lot of other players that make those kind of things, Arlo and stuff like that. And there's the IoT version of that same product and it's four, five X, whatever more expensive, sometimes 10 X more expensive. And then, you know, sometimes those devices die because the backend cloud goes away and then you spend a lot of money for something that doesn't actually do anything anymore. That's been that whole space there. And so you've had some breakout winners for sure, you know, who got acquired that were really narrowly focused. But yeah, you're right. Most of these consumer things didn't fly. And it also, the ratio of the, the cost of the product to the cost of adding compute, storage, networking to it. If what you're adding to it to make it an IoT version of the product, that thing, that stuff you're adding needs to be less than 1% of the cost of the whole product. But people were bolting on stuff that was a huge portion of the cost and it just blew out. You know, it was cool. There were early adopters, geeks, who thought that was cool. But the masses were like, I'm not paying for that, you know. And so all that stuff died. And then I think, you know, maybe five or so years ago, some people started to wake up and go, huh, well, let's see. Maybe I should follow the money. I think this industrial stuff is more important. This enterprise stuff is where the money's at. And it is. Right. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I have a, a follow-up question or like a redirect. So the total cost of the unit can't be more than 1% of the you know the IoT development work. Haven't heard that before. That's really interesting. On the other side, that's on the cost side. On the value side, one of the things that you've said before and you mentioned in the pre-interview is IoT is the difference between guessing and knowing, which is more on the value side. Talk talk about that and like your view on, you know, a good IoT innovation takes you from guessing on a thing to knowing on a thing, what that means to you, examples, et cetera. Well, you know, the good part is after the crash and burn of mobile, I spent the second half of my career building Azure at Microsoft and then building Azure IoT. And that's where I went, got to go revisit IoT again and go deep and build a global IoT platform and then go to Hitachi and build Lumata, doing the industrial and living in factories. And so to your point of the guessing and knowing, if you think about you're in a factory, you're building something on an assembly line so much, and this spans lots of industries, but there's, you know, we always hear terms like tribal knowledge, or I've got a feel for things or whatever, or I do, we do routine maintenance schedules on whatever this piece of equipment or this thing. And everything we do, or if I'm doing agriculture, I'm going to water, I'm going to irrigate this field on a certain schedule. All of these decisions, these schedules, these things that we're doing are, they're based on a best guess. And I'm not saying they're just stabbing in the dark. It's based on past experience. And they think, yeah, this is about what I should do. But you're always guessing. With IoT, now those places, those things are actually telling you when it's time to go do maintenance or when it's time to get ready for maintenance. And so what I mean by that is if you've got a factory with industrial robots on an assembly line and they're instrumented, you know, you've put your compute storage and networking, your software, your SDK, 
you're wiring in to all the sensors on that machine, whatever it happens to be, and it's constantly telling you its health, its performance, problems it's having. I'm totally all in with digital twins from a long time ago. And so modeling subsystems in a machine to the whole machine and kind of causal relationships when problems in a subsystem can bubble up to bring down the whole thing. And so with IoT, these machines are constantly telling you I'm okay, <laughs> or I'm not okay, or I'm wearing down. I'm seeing, you know, because there's certain things, you know, we all have knowledge of how machines wear down. Obviously, common sense tells you anything with moving parts is going to wear down and fail eventually, right? Over some period of time, you know, like your car, you got brakes, you're driving your car, and then you start to hear a little kind of squeal when you're putting on the brakes. And that's your first indicator that, hey, sometime in the future, something might go wrong. And then maybe you don't do anything about it. And later on, you're hitting the brakes and you hear this grinding sound. And then that, guess what? That's a more expensive cost when you finally fix it. That's IoT in a nutshell. That's industrial IoT in a nutshell right there. It, instead of you discovering it, sensors are knowing it earlier than the human knows about it. You know, obviously you get direct feedback when you're driving your car to go, oh crap, this is going to cost me a lot of money. And so industrial IoT is the same thing. We're trying to avoid downtime. We're trying to avoid an expensive repair. If you get to things earlier, it's cheaper than if you wait later, right? It's stuff like that. So that knowing allows you to make decisions to take things. Now, these early days of IoT, you know, it, you see people building all these systems with dashboards and it's like Homer Simpson in a nuclear reactor looking at some big screen. Oh, I'm going to do something about it. Just think of that as sales crap. And think of that as the early days of IoT, because the vision for IoT is tens of billions of devices, a multivariate system, analytics, pattern matching, rules, and then later on ML and things like that where it's appropriate, and then making decisions on its own. People are not supposed to be involved in IoT at all. They are today. They are today because it's comfortable. And we're actually, no one's really doing big IoT yet, despite a lot of talk. And so you you still have people looking at dashboards and going, oh, I see this line here. Maybe I should do something. In the future, the reason I built Lumata at Hitachi, you know, your connect, collect that data, analyze, derive insights, and then take action. And so having those connectors, don't build a new data silo, have connectors to all those other backend systems, other systems of record that a customer may have, automation, so that drive an insight and take an action on your own and automate that thing. Because in the future, the, the IoT that we all think about, it'll be so big, there's no one or group of people that could manage such a large system. And so we have to get really smart about managing and decision-making on a giant multivariate system. Let's pull on the human thread here a little bit. So one thing you and I have talked about before is this you know, potential pitchfork moment where you know, jobs have been replaced, innovation, IoT, automation, you know, are viewed as even more existential to perhaps like a working class of people or maybe uh, not a working class, maybe people that are thought of as, you know, white collar jobs. What's your thought on, you know, the pace of innovation appears to be accelerating. I IoT, I, I think, is primed to have a moment if the world will allow it to and not get in the way in the 20s, you know, but like fast change that comes at the expense of humans and their jobs, these things are occasionally, they get torched with yes. actual torches. 
Yes. So, you know, thoughts on that. Talk to me about life in 2025. You know, do you think that we're looking at a growing group of people who are maybe not at all fans of the IoT? Yeah, there's always going to be people who are not fans of just automation in general, right? The fact that we, a lot of people don't realize this or they just don't think about it. When I say the word factory, when we have, the reason we have factories all over the world to make things, that's actually an example of automation. Before that, people built everything by hand. A factory is a form of automation. And so when you're a part of a factory and you think, I've got my stable factory job for life, you just have it for a period of time. Now, there's no doubt about it. In the past, the pace of innovation was slow enough that you could graduate from college or not, just get out of high school and have a diploma and get yourself a good job. And you might work at that job for your whole life until you retire because the pace of innovation was slow enough that it wasn't going to get disrupted. Obviously, things have been snowballing. Technology just keeps doubling, tripling, you know, rapidly. When all of a sudden, if when you look at pictures, like whenever you see a photo of the Gigafactory, you know, for Tesla, and there's like no one in the factory, or there maybe there's one guy, you know, that probably strikes fear in a lot of factory workers, for instance. And there's all kinds of jobs where that happens too. And it's not just like when you hear AI is coming for your job, your white collar job. It spans all kinds of things. And obviously we're doing it to ourselves, right? But we've always done this. We have always done this. We're just doing it faster than we've done it before. And so you can see unrest. We've seen unrest in weirdness happening just during COVID, right? Gosh, weird stuff's happening right now even. You know, people are losing their jobs. People lost their jobs. Why would you have people talking about things like universal basic income if people on a wide scale didn't realize that we're headed for some weird times where human brains are not going to be able to keep up? Not, And you know what? We're all created equal, but we're not all going to have equal outcomes. Everybody's also unique and different. And some people have more capacity to learn and get smarter and keep up with the changes than others, right? And that's just the way it is. You know, I often say we're all created equal, but it doesn't stay that way for very long. You know, it's just like uh, you have two automobiles, two cars, identical cars off the lot. One of them, the owner invests in it heavily, aftermarket upgrades and things like that. The other one, you know, never gets oil changes, has the squeaky brakes like you were talking about. And those two cars are just not equal. They're just not equal. You know, I don't know. It's a fallacy to think that it's different for people. Anyway, we could talk about this for ages. Last question of part one of our chat with Rob Tiffany. We'll have more in part two of the interview in the next couple of weeks. You know, like I said, you've got a a big media footprint out there or social media footprint. Where where do you point people at? So for people that want to follow Rob, maybe they're hearing you for the first time today. They like what you're throwing down. Where's some good places to, to follow the Rob Tiffany story? Sure. Well, certainly LinkedIn and Twitter, that's low-hanging fruit. I've got a robtiffanydigital.com, got some stuff out there. YouTube, gosh, I probably created 70 or 80 different IoT Minute videos. Back when I had to teach the Hitachi Salesforce how to sell IoT, I created these bite-sized videos to teach them all the little elements of IoT, kind of little small segments to make it digestible. So you can talk intelligently to customers, right? And then IoT Coffee Talk, gosh, you know, that's me and a couple of industry analysts. And then three of us are actually inventors of some of the most successful IoT platforms in the world. And so we do a talk, it's like an hour or so every Wednesday. And and that's up on YouTube and also on, on different podcast platforms as well. And that's a totally irreverent, fun thing. 
it's great having someone like Rick Bellotta who invented ThingWorks and obviously he just doesn't care what anybody thinks, which makes it really exciting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right, folks. So if you want to keep up with Rob, it sounds like you got a lot of opportunities, Twitter and LinkedIn being uh, two of the more obvious ones, but there's a lot of content out there. He's got other uh, podcast episodes and a separate podcast where you can check him out. Rob, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's great talking to you. All right, folks, that's it for today. I did get in a little bit of trouble for my outro last time, so I'd like to retract my previous statement. We do care about your ratings. Please subscribe to the podcast. I know I said, well, subscribe if you want or don't. I'm officially retracting that. <laughs> Rob's looking at me like, buddy, what did you do? So uh, yeah, we would love your support. This is how we grow the show. Um, if you have an idea for an episode or a guest that you think would would make a, a fantastic guest for the show, please email us, podcast at verypossible.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the internet. You shouldn't have to worry about IoT projects dragging on or unreliable vendors. You've got enough on your plate. The right team of engineers and project managers can change a pivotal moment for your business into your competitive edge. Very's close-knit crew of ambitious problem solvers, continuous improvers, and curious builders know how to turn your ideas into a reality, on time and up to your standards. With a focus on mitigating risk and maximizing opportunity, we'll help you build an IoT solution that you can hang your hat on. Let's bring your IoT idea to life. Learn more at verypossible.com. You've been listening to Over the Air, IoT, Connected Devices, and The Journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player and give us a rating. Have a question or an idea for a future episode? Send it to podcast at verypossible.com. See you next time.